Hello and welcome to What Goes Bump Tonight. I'm your host, Riley Clark, and alongside me, as always, is Trevor Jensen. And today is a very, very special episode, as we are going to officially celebrate the five-year anniversary of our show by doing a little retro throwback to a series that made us who we are. The Does It Go Bump series. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Wayne. So, yeah, we uh, we have talked about this for a little while. Well, a, a long while, I would probably say at this point. But a little while where we we really wanted to get back to our roots and, you know, start doing some of the fun stuff that really got us into the paranormal podcasting scene, as you say. Yeah, so, and with a little bit of twist, adding a, a visual presentation. Exactly. Well, so we're hoping that no. this will be something y'all enjoy. We're going to be adding some awesome imagery throughout the episode, and it's going to yeah. be hopefully enjoyable. Yeah, we're we're upping our quality. <laughs> upping <laughs> the quality. It took us five oh, years God. to get to this point, but we are ready. Oh, we God are damn. ready for it. And mm-hmm. we are getting close to our 200th episode. So, what that means is the Bumpy Awards are going to be happening. Mr. Bumpy right there, down there, you can kind of see him on my bookshelf. With that being said, we will be playing no favorites for any of this. Nope. It's all up to you, the listeners, the night crew. You will decide who wins these awards on episode 200. This is the Nickelodeon Choice Awards of the Paranormal Friends. It might not actually end up being the actual 200th episode because of scheduling, and we don't... Scheduling's hard. Like, we're dumb. Do you, do We've just been rocking and rolling with these lives, but it, it'll happen. It'll happen right. We promise that. Yeah, so, we'll do this right. You know how we do things. We're scatterbrains, so... <laughs> yeah, open-headed narratives, some might say. <laughs> yeah, but that's why you guys love us and have been listening to us for five years. I think I just hissed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know why I hissed. Damn. All right. Well, it's with that being said, I think it's time to figure out if it goes bump or not. Trevor, what are we reading today? Ooh, we got a big old pamphlet here. We got some story time, some stories for y'all. Okay. We have the story that is titled, My SEAL Team Found Something Horrific in the Baltic Sea. Posted by user... Jaro, oh, jar of goodness. I said, always, Jaro. dude, they always come through goodness. with a good Reddit name. Jar of goodness. Shout I out mean, to that Reddit user for this, this story that hopefully we're going to give the sign of approval tonight on. I already like the sounds of this because I mean, if any, like before we even jump into the story, the Baltic Sea in its own right is a fucking monster. And if you know nothing about it, it is some of the roughest waters you will ever traverse as a seaman. I just wanted to say semen. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Clear the old throat passage. I was part of a Navy SEAL team called SACOP Recon. If you know anyone who was Navy SEAL, they'll tell you they never heard of us, which is by design. They'll think you mean spec ops. We're above that. Spec ops guys don't even know we exist. The team operates within special access programs, all of which are programs and projects that have the highest security clearance the U.S. government uses. 
I can't tell you any of the things I worked on, and I wouldn't if I could. Let's just say that if the military or an intel group needed to see or do anything underwater that no one could know about, and that also required knowledge of technologies and information that even regular SEALs aren't cleared to have access to, they'd send us in mention by the time we're done. If there's a dime sitting buried in the sand on the ocean floor, you can find it on our data. Our work is quickly processed and handed over to our sister team called SACOP Strike. Normal SEAL-, SEAL teams call these guys fire teams. They do everything from sabotage, disarming mines, to underwater combat. Yes, combat. Actual underwater combat. They have special weapons designed to work underwater, and I'm not talking about the mere knives and spear guns. Anyway, it was 2013 and we were sent to the Baltic Sea with orders to check out something that had recently been found on the ocean floor by some sunken treasure hunters. It's called the Baltic Sea Anomaly. The Swedish government had quietly shut down the treasure hunter's study of the object down and made them sign national security oaths to keep their mouths shut and play it off like they can't find funding or further expeditions. Meanwhile, they called the U.S. for assistance. They have their own divers, of course, but this thing was shutting down any and all electronics that came within 200 feet of it. They were stumped. The object itself was located about 300 feet below the surface and was just sitting there on the ocean floor. It was almost perfectly round except for a few sections that looked as if they had been cut out. It had the basic shape of the ship Han Solo flew in Star Wars movies, the Millennium Falcon. The treasure hunter's original sonar image had been published before the Swedes had the situation under control, so the public was already theorizing it to be a UFO. It was not. The object sat at the end of a long trail in the sand, stretched out on the bottom into a ravine that appeared to be cut out of a small undersea mountain. This gave the impression to some that this was a crash landing scar on the ocean floor, where the object had slid to a stop upon its sinking. It was not. I was looking forward to the challenge of performing a reconnaissance mission without the aid of electronics. We brought a few devices with us, just in case, but we were fully prepared and expecting not to be able to use them. We even had underwater flares in case our lights shut off. Our mission was simple. Determine the basic nature of the object and survey its exterior in detail. This sounds easier than it is especially without cameras and electronics. To determine the nature of the object, we use the null hypothesis approach. This is where you try to rule things out by attempting to disprove your hypothesis. In this case, we were acting on the hypothesis that the formation was was natural in origin. Was, is, sandstone or buildup of sediment that just happened to build up make a shape that coincidentally looked like a construction. Deep down, I was thinking it was probably some World War II equipment that had been scuttled or blasted off of a ship during the war. 
maybe the base of a large ship-mounted gun. But why would it be knocking electronics out? And how? At any rate, all of us were geologists, marine biologists, and oceanographers. So we knew exactly what to look for. I know that might sound odd to you. You have to understand that knowing what we are doing in all situations that we might encounter is what the military was paying for. You are not deployed in our group without these skills. If you don't want to do the schooling, stay in the regular SEALs. In addition to our skill set, our team only had two squads of three men each and no commanding officers. All six of us were officers of equal rank. We designed the mission ourselves and operated with extreme self-discipline. If you need an officer to tell you what to do, then you aren't fit for our kind of work. The Navy learned the hard way a long time ago that a commanding officer's ego can ruin a mission in certain circumstances. And while it might be necessary to have one when the men under him need to need that to perform, in the case of SecOp missions, they only get in the way and risk lives and mission failure. And we did not fail at our missions. It was not allowed. Teams in the old days had to keep shaking their commanding officers to ensure the mission success. And finally, the Navy just started letting us do our thing. The squad was going to start by taking samples of the surface material that had settled or otherwise built up on the object. We would drill through it with diamond-tipped, hand-powered drills. We had to determine what the object beneath was comprised of. We do this with the aid of special chemistry test kits we had, which were designed to work in ocean water. Remember, we couldn't use spectrometers because electronics were useless. The other team was going to examine every inch of the thing looking for signs of manufacturing. Both teams would also create a map of the object's magnetic field and variance. If there was any, using only handheld compasses and underwater pencils. Yes, we were that good. We began our dive and the sun was exactly 45 degrees above the horizon. This would prove enough light so we wouldn't need to use our flares for most of the day. We didn't bring air tanks except small ones for emergencies and instead had hoses coming from the surface supported by airbags and every 50 feet. This would allow us to stay down as long as we needed. The strike team was topside and the boat making sure the air pumps were working and preparing for whatever they might have to do once we came back with our assessment. They weren't expecting to have to do anything as we all assumed that this was all either a piece of wartime hardware or an ancient ruin, but they were prepared anyway. They always were. On the way down, I noticed there was no fish or life of any kind in the waters around us. Usually, that time of year, you could find a flounder, herring, cod, another species of fish swimming about. Maybe it was an odd coincidence, but I found it noteworthy just the same. As we approached the object, a strange feeling came over us. It was an unusual feeling for us all. It was mild fear and apprehension. 
we had all been in much more dangerous situations that this before and we were trained not to fear we didn't fear death injury or even drowning yet all of us reported the same sensation we wore special dive masks that covered our entire faces so we could speak to each other sound travels well in the water and so as long as we were close enough we could all discuss what we needed to we agreed to continue the mission in spite of this feeling but make sure we kept each other aware of any increase in feelings or duress that we might experience we soon arrived at the object and split up into our respective squads up close the object was clearly not a natural formation but we would go through our process anyway to be thorough the object was somewhat flat on the top except for a small perfectly smooth dome on the right side to the left side there was a stairway going up to the flat top the right angles and straight lines on the object had been dismissed as rare but real natural phenomena that occurs due to the molecular nature of certain types of stone combined with water erosion from tides and currents but here the stairs were sandwiched between flat stone walls both sides which would prevent water from moving in the necessary directions to erode the stairs into the perfect steps that they were i chipped off a small chunk of the material on the side of the structure and put it into my test kit's receptacle squeezed some chemicals into the enclosure and shook it i already knew but the resulting color of the mixture verified that the object was indeed covered with a thick layer of silt and sand that had built up compacted and hardened over time it must have taken a long time to get into the state it was in because it was a part of the Baltic Sea that didn't have a lot of turbulent water or natural silt. I got the drill out and I turned the hand crank as the bit sunk into the caked on silt and sand. It went down about four inches and when it hit the underlying structure, I withdrew the drill, blew the silt out of the hole with a turkey baster type of device we use and looked in i recognized the material right away it was coarse grained granite pink black and white specks together the surface of the object wasn't just made from granite which shouldn't be found in the bottom of the sea but it was polished granite perfectly flat and smooth i cleared off some more of the compact sand covering the area and it showed it to my team Brent and David, both of whom were busy mapping the magnetic variance of the object. David swam over to the other squad to inform them of the discovery, while Brent showed me the map that they had made thus far. It was unbelievable. They drew on a plastic sheet that had a sketch of the object, and it was a special kind of grease pencil that worked underwater. The lines they drew around it represented the distance from the object that they where the magnetic field the object emitted varied from the standard north south and each line had a number on it indicating how many degrees off from the expected compass reading it was at that point according to the map the object was pulling the compass needle a 45 degrees away from magnetic north towards itself this effect was not present at the surface as we had checked before descending. Just then, David swam back over to us and told that the other squad had found something that we needed to see. 
We met them behind the object where the bottom of the structure met the ocean floor. The men had discovered a small doorway. My squad volunteered to go inside. We removed our airlines and hooked up our emergency air tank, each containing about a half hour of air. It was dark inside the passageway, so I lit up a flare where in the hallway that led back towards the front of the object, but underneath it. The walls had less silt on them, and we could wipe it off with our hands down to the polished granite. About halfway back of the passageway, ramped upward, and we walked up and out of the water into a large room inside the structure. The room was dark and cold. My flare lit the walls and the ceiling revealing the same polished granite as the outside. There was engravings in the stone wall every four feet or so. The ceiling was about 12 feet from the floor. The room was a half circle in shape and had three granite tables and resembled altars a little bit. One of each side of the ramp and one behind it. The rest of the room was bare. I tried to turn my flashlight and as I expected, it did not work. David started sketching the images on the engravings, which appeared to me to be depictions of human sacrifice. In the images, the rituals were taking place on the top exterior of the very structure we were inside. It was clear from the scenes depicted that this building wasn't always underwater. Either the oceans had risen since it was in use, or the land had shrunken. Brent pulled me over to one of these engravings and pointed. There, in the image, was some creature devouring the sacrifice. The men in the scene weren't sacrificing people to some deity. They were feeding a monster. Oh, shit. It was like a man in that it had two legs and feet. However, at its waist, it appeared to have about a dozen tentacles coming out of its body, but no arms. It did have a head, though. But it looked more like a giant mouth gaping open with large teeth. The thing had large feathers coming off its back and at the top of its head as well. I've never seen anything like it depicted before. However, there are some Aztec pre-Columbian figures that are similar in a few ways. Brent and I quickly measured the room's dimensions and I did a walkthrough covering every single foot of the place. We found a stone door that appeared as though it was supposed to rotate on a central shaft. However, we could not get it to budge. We discovered a stairwell that descended downward, but not back into the water. This went down into stone. We summarized that the structure had been built on top of an even larger rock or mountain that was now buried by the seafloor. We descended the stone stairwell, which was not made of the same granite as the upper chamber. Instead, this material looked like standard seafloor basalt. The stairs ended about 40 feet down into a small antechamber. There were some relics on the floor there, a spear and a set of ankle shackles. Both appeared completely oxidized to the point to where they would probably disintegrate upon our attempting to pick them up. The room had an opening that led into a huge cavern which was lit by an abundance of bioluminescent algae which coated much of the cave walls as well as a small river that flowed in and out of the set of pools. The water glowed a bright aqua color from the algae 
which made the water cloudy and opaque. There were large quartz crystals embedded in the rock along with iron pyrite and veins of gold. The view was spectacular. We wondered aloud, what had been in those shackles? We suspected it was the creature from the engravings or perhaps a sacrifice victim. There were footpaths that ran between the rock and the stalagmites that formed on the floor of the cavern. We split up and each proceeded down different paths, giving ourselves exactly 10 minutes of time to meet back up at the foot of the stairwell. Our air would be running out by then, and we weren't going to risk trying to breathe the ancient air down there that we'd have to head back soon. We took air, water, and sand samples, as well as photographs using old-fashioned non-electronic cameras loaded with a special film designed for low light. The cavern seemed to go back at least 300 feet, with a ceiling around 30 feet high. The width, I estimated, in the neighborhood of 50 or 60 feet. I could hear water pouring into water coming from the rear of the cave to ascertain whether or not there was some kind of waterfall back there, some place. I rounded a bend in the footpath, and I saw the source of the sound. A two-foot diameter flow of water was pouring out of the sidewall of the cave, about 20 feet up, arching into a pool that was recessed in the floor. Behind the waterfall, there were several skeletons chained up to the back wall, I started to take some photos of this when I felt something wrap around my right ankle. Looking down, I beheld a black tentacle protruding up and out of the pool which had wrapped around my lower leg several turns. I instinctively pulled my leg away, but it tightened its grip as I did so. I sounded a a distress call from a noise-making device. We each carried on our wetsuit as I struck the tentacle with my fist in a hope that it might release me. It pulled back a bit, which caused me to fall onto my back, and I reached for a rock pick as the thing rose up out of the water. It was hideous. It used its tentacles for support on the black, rocky ground. Its head was like an octopus, only the mouth was front-facing. It growled, bearing, reminded me of shark teeth with several rows of going towards the back of its throat. It started to pull me towards it and lift me up off the ground when Brent reached me with David, not far behind. He struck the tentacles that held me with his rock pick, letting loose a glowing aqua-colored fluid from the creature's flesh. It immediately dropped me and turned its attention to Brent. Its saucer-sized amber eyes twitched back and forth as it examined him in a moment before it lashed out with two of its tentacles. As it did, both of these appendages projected long, thin, sharp, white-ribbed rods from From their their tips, which pierced Brent's torso. The creature then lifted him up and pulled him towards its gaping, shrieking mouth. David had arrived at my location but then, by then and began to drag my body backwards away from this thing as it put Brent's head into its mouth and closed it in a circular fashion around his neck where its teeth cut through Brent's wetsuit and flesh. He flayed around, trying to break free for a moment before the creature had bitten his head clean off. We could only watch and take a few photos from the distance as it used its tentacles to peel back his wetsuit and munch on Brent's body like a human would when deshelling a shrimp. I got to my feet as David announced 
that we needed to let the strike team handle it. The two of us headed to the stairwell as fast as we could. Before we could get there, the creatures swam along the river next to us and jumped out of the water, tackling David while thrusting its pointy rods through him, just like it did to Brent. David and the beast fell over sideways, and it proceeded to feed on him. It did so with such ferocity and speed that I had no time to try to save him. All I could do was run and take advantage of the fact that it would be stalled from killing me for a minute as it feasted on David. I glanced back and I saw the creature had put David's lifeless body down and began to pursue me. I guess it didn't want to lose any of that rare human meat it had discovered. I suppose it had been feeding on the algae in the water for so long and the taste of blood once again after all these years was too much for it to resist. Just as I was reaching the opening into the small chamber where the stairwell was, the thing flung itself at me and landed on my back. I had my rock pick in hand by then, so I started to bang its pointed tip into the meat of the monster's tentacles. It withdrew it, but as it did, the thing wrapped its body around my upper torso and pressed its flesh against the back of my neck where I could feel tiny bristle-like hairs stick into my spine like little needles. They were inserted deep into my nervous system where the creature hijacked my motor control. It used this method to couple with my brain and our minds became one mind. I knew its entire history, thoughts, and experiences. I understood its deepest motivations, the desires, and it knew mine. It used my legs to walk as it rode me like a horse back up the stairwell, into the chamber above, and down the ramp to the open sea outside. It hadn't been out of the cavern in over a millennia, as it needed a human host to climb the stairs. I could feel its excitement as we exited the structure and proceeded to kill three men and the other squad who had been waiting for our return. Knowing the lethality of the strike team, it opted to steal an inflatable motorized raft and sink the boat by having me chip a hole in the hull with my rock pick. The sound of me doing this alerted the seals inside to our presence and two of them entered the water to check it out as we sped off in the raft. I got an oversized trench coat to hide the creature on my back so I could move about among the masses without causing a stir. I haven't checked in with the Navy in several weeks now, and I am currently sitting in a cheap hotel room in Barcelona typing this. While I would like to be rid of this thing, I also have to admit that I feel pleasures at the taste of human blood and meat. Our minds have become one, and as and I am as much it as I am me. I know the military will have sent a wet team to track me down by now, and I know they will probably eventually find me. I have to stay on the move. The trail of dead will soon give away my whereabouts, as the method of kills is unique and leaves its own signature. I'm putting the story online as a last-ditch effort to get a message through to my dear mother Jane the only person I still feel connected to, and whom I miss dearly. I love you, Mom. I'm sorry about all of this. And maybe someday, if I'm lucky, we can meet again. I've already left too many bodies here, so I'm leaving Barcelona tonight, before daybreak. 
But first, I feed again. X. <gasps> Holy shit. Did you see it going that way? Yeah. I didn't see him melding with the creature and like becoming one. I, I did not see that coming at all. Mm -mm. Not one freaking bit. Like, honestly, that story kept uh, taking twists when I didn't expect it to take twists. No, I that was pretty cool. I actually really like that con like that is a very intriguing concept. Once once the like building got like described, I was up. like, this is actually way cooler than I was thinking. It's wicked. Like, dude, just imagine like you you're just a, an urban explorer or like a scientist or a biologist, and you just stumble upon something that is groundbreaking. You know what I mean? Where it's like there is there's an anomaly down here where there shouldn't be. Do you go inside? Of course you're going inside. You have to. Imagine, dude. So like what if you go to the bottom of the ocean floor and it's just like you're you're just you're panning, you know, doing whatever fishing, and all of a sudden you snag. You go down there in your wetsuit and you see just a completely like shut, no cracks, no seals, no hinges door. Like an ornate old ass door down there. What's under it? What's in what's under the door? What are the, what's behind the door? Like I have to know. But, dude, I did not expect him and that creature to become one, honestly. And then, the, like, the craving for flesh, like, kind of like a skinwalker type thing. Like, yeah, like, whoa. Like, that's incredibly cool. I just, I love when you take these, like, these very well-known tropes where it's like, yeah, like, that's, like, the thing, you know, like, it, whatever. But then, like the way they presented it was in a very unique way and I really liked it like the strike team the seal team like going and finding this like this very weird rock formation basically and basically the they could have just stayed down there for days if they needed to because they had intimate yeah. air there but there also was like a little bit of like I, I do have a little gripe why did you include like there's like a skid mark in the ocean floor and it has nothing to do with like the story yeah whatsoever. they never explained that yeah like what is what's the skid mark is it like just there if it's not because if it's not a part of like a ship or anything and it was built into the ground or into the mountain that's down there or in the topographical shit down there then why is there like a skid mark like did something try to leave like did somebody else get in there first like I don't know. you know i always love to speculate on these stories but it's the author's discretion here yeah, that's the one thing you missed. I will. That is that's a good point. But that like, point. ball in. That was a great oh, story. So yeah, what are we? What are we going to give this? Are we going to give it the sign of approval? I think we should start numerically doing the like one by everyone knows the rule, and like we should start actually giving them the numerical and like giving them the horn of approval when they're over fives. You know what I mean? So like anything over five gets a horn. Anything under five does not get a horn, and it gets a wah wah wah. I think it gets a horn, though, honestly. Oh, 100%. I say horn, and if I have to give it a number, I would say 7.8. 7. Yeah, it was about 7.5 for me. Yep, 7.8, like closer to 8 to me than it is. It like, bumps. Uh, it bumps. It officially bumps. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> we might as well just be professional beatboxers. Yeah. We'll put the actual noise in on on the. <laughs> yeah, the fun part is I can actually like overlay that. I might actually just do it when we're just being quiet. <laughs> but I think that's a good point to to wrap it up 
for this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that story. We appreciate every single one of you. If you haven't yet, make sure you like, subscribe, click that bell, comment down below. It helps the channel grow so freaking much you have no idea. Yep. If you could do that on Spotify, iTunes, I think Google Podcasts allows you to do that too. Like just yep. give it a five star for us. It really helps us get seen by other people. So yeah, that we're, wherever you're listening to podcasts, man, and you for any crazy creator. Stuff. I will add this out. This is actually crazy. We didn't talk about this mm-hmm. in the last live, but we'll throw it into this episode. So we just did the Olympia Bookstore. We did. The owner actually fouled us on Apple Podcasts and didn't even know. Went and looked up our podcast and was already following. I was like, oh, you guys are this. And we're like, yes, we did the podcast before we started doing this. It was a really fucking wholesome moment where it's like, wow, dude, I can't believe we come this far. It's incredible. So, yeah. And that's all thanks to everyone that has subscribed and clicked that bell. Bing, bing, that bing. being said, folks, remember to keep your ears and eyes open for what really goes. Peace out, Girl Scouts. <laughs>